Welcome to part two of our conversation with Steve McIntosh, one of my favorite persons and philosophers. He's really good and he's really deep and he's really relevant. Among other things, we talk about the practice of virtues, habits of the heart. What should we be becoming and what virtues do we need to manifest in our lives? And that takes us back to the dawn of human history. And these aren't new things, but sometimes in our age of change and cynicism, we miss the most basic things. Well, we talk about how to bring it back and how we should practice these things in our everyday lives to become the people that we need to be. And that's just the beginning of the story. So if you're like me, when Steve talks, get your pen and paper out or your legal pad or get your notebook, however you take notes and be ready to stop and go back and write this stuff down because it's really rich, very inspiring, and so absolutely needed and useful for this time that we're living in. God bless you and thanks for showing up. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. But another thing you bring out in your book, which I find really refreshing and exciting, is the idea of the practice of virtues. And this goes back to Aristotle, I mean, or maybe before, but this is a, a really old idea, and I think maybe Aquinas talked about it too, the practice of virtues. And a lot of my professional work is working with addicts and alcoholics, and it's a progressive disease that destroys character. You know, you can start out a pretty good guy and pretty soon at the toward the end of the progression or the devolution, you don't care about anything. OK, and getting sober was a process of starting to rebuild a character structure and the practice of virtues. Going to a meeting helps set up the chairs and maybe the first time in a long time you're actually doing something that's not just for yourself and your incessant cravings for substances and make the bad coffee. That's what we drink here, you know, or however that worked and just small steps in that direction. And I have been puzzling with that one. You know, how do we, how do we build character? And it seems one of the, the, the big problems in all three in the modernist and the traditionalist and the progressive are versions of these without virtue, without kindness, without respect. It's kind of brutal in all three camps. So, these virtues. And I think most people that would read them would go, yeah, that's right. And how do we begin to bring back that sort of thing as a bomb, as a solve that we're not always going to agree, but how do we begin to heal the destructive? Well, I, I think that's what you talk about. Uh, chasms that have developed in our country through the practice of virtues. And what a refreshingly old idea. I mean, it's, it's really brilliant. Well, thanks. So this is tricky. Because first, just starting out, the word virtues is freighted with baggage from traditionalism, right? I mean, most people, especially progressive people, the idea that you're supposed to behave virtuously or virtues is something you should aspire to, I think people have thought about it a lot, feel like that's priggish, right? That that's some kind of moral imposition by some dead traditional system that we no longer have allegiance to. So this idea of being virtuous, right, within progressive culture has its own definition. It means being woke, right? It means being politically correct, at least in some circles of progressivism. And of course, within traditionalism, at least on paper, many of the virtues are still taught, you know, by the Christian church. But we see this behavior on the right, which is certainly far from virtuous. So what do we mean by virtues? I would say that it's character development. It goes way back in history. I would say that a modern or a post-progressive definition of virtues, they're techniques of perception for the transcendent. And what I mean by that is that by acting in a way that is virtuous, in a way that involves recognition of what you owe to your character, what you owe to your soul, that being good is something that isn't just nice to have, that it's ultimately the heart of your own self-interest properly understood. It's something that I offer in the book scaling it down in some ways to talk about it as a, uh, a kind of a psychological technology 
right? That you do for your own development or your own sense of excellence. Like people do mindfulness, right? That's very popular now. That's a kind of a psychological technology that comes from an ancient venerable religious tradition that's been secularized into this form of mindfulness. And we could say the same thing about virtues, that it's an ancient spiritual practice. It's not just Christian. Uh, You can see it in Confucianism and in lots of other ancient societies. And that this practice is something that people do well to do for their own happiness, right? As Aristotle understood early on, that ultimately your deep happiness, your eudaimonia, as he calls it, it comes from being an excellent human. And being an excellent human means acting virtuously. Right. So we could name some of the the seven virtues, right? For example, that come down to us from history. They're memorialized in the the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And they come partially from ancient Greek, from the ancient Greeks. That is, they've been thinking of Aristotle and Plato and the rest of Athenian society was incorporated into Christianity and then became fortified. So now we have these seven virtues, although there's hundreds of potential virtues. It's good for this discussion to put a stake in the ground and say, what do we mean by virtue? And so I could say it means justice and temperance and prudence and courage and hope and faith and love. Now, we could have many different synonyms. I actually have an online exercise called Your Portrait of the Good that I created to help people discern what their uh, essential virtues are that they they might want to commit to practicing. But this development of yourself, this development of your character, it satisfies both self-interest because it's ultimately the way to be happy is to serve something greater than yourself. But it's also connected to this idea of transcendence we talked about earlier. But the practice of virtues, I think, is a very important technology. But let me just move from the individualistic level of virtues are good to do, right? Like meditation or something, to the more to, to the larger frame. And that is part of the way that, that virtues in the past had a civilizing influence is that their practice was connected to large-scale cultural agreements, Right, So the how of virtues is almost coterminous with the why of virtues. And what I mean by that is that the reason to be virtuous, I mean, self-interest can take you a ways, but ultimately there are social norms, societal expectations, religious teachings that commit people to virtuous behavior. And so a virtuous culture is really, you know, those agreement structures are really what makes virtues come online. And so reestablishing the agreements around character development, around the fact that you know, who you are as a person is in some ways can be understood by how much of this transcendent energy. So I, I talk about it in the book as the upward current of the good. And I try to distance any kind of ideas of magical thinking or new age spirituality and just say, look, from the very beginning of life, life has been choosing to survive and reproduce, right? That's a primitive form of goodness that has a magnetic attraction on all kinds of consciousness. Consciousness at every level can feel that pull. And now with the emergence of the neosphere and human consciousness, we have a a much stronger pull of this upward current. And again, it justified as best I can as being completely compatible with a scientific understanding of evolution. But nevertheless, it's there, it's undeniable, unless you have an entirely materialistic worldview, it becomes pretty evident that we can all feel the pull of some kind of goodness, truth, or beauty. Some kind of transcendent energy is pulling on us, especially when we have a healthy soul or a character that can feel this magnetism. That's why I mentioned these these virtues, these, these habits of the heart, which are about your character's excellence. The, the larger your character the more developed it is, the more virtuous it is, the more of the traction, this magnetic pull of the upward current of the good can have on you. The more developed your soul, the more you feel this calling to try to make yourself as excellent as you can and make a contribution to the world, even if that's just good parenting, right? Or good relationships or or something simple, but working for the good and recognizing that that's tied in with your own self-interest This is the beginning of a renewed understanding of the centrality of a virtuous culture to having a healthy civilization where people are working for something higher and have a degree of solidarity around it. And that's one of your real contributions in your book, Steve, and in the work you're doing with your institute is is bringing in the idea of the necessity of a re-appreciation, but also a new understanding of the virtues. And the way I would summarize it is that seen with wisdom, 
the virtues are not, as our culture usually understands them, forms of self-sacrifice. They're rather enlightened self-interest, benefit to everyone. And the second theme that you pointed to, which is really crucial, is that the more deeply one sees into oneself and into the nature of life, the more the virtues are recognized as natural, appropriate, skillful, benevolent, and satisfying ways of living. Sure. And you have harnessed those recognitions to the larger concern of finding our way through and beyond our contemporary cultural morass. And that just seems like an incredibly important contribution. Well, thanks. This idea of reestablishing cultural agreements around character excellence is part of what marks this attempt that we're making to stake out. I mean, all of us who are working toward the emergence of the internal worldview or this post-progressive worldview, as I call it, we're trying to create a new form of culture that has its own, in a sense, kind of cellular membrane, right? So that it can include the other cultures, but in some ways it's also transcending them. And part of that move of transcendence is to, it's got many elements. One I mentioned of this kind of recognizing that the more we can embody this existential polarity of fixing what's wrong and preserving what's right within ourselves, that's part of the agreement. But another part of the agreement are this understanding of the, the centrality of character excellence, both for yourself and for the group, and understanding how that the practice of the virtues, I mentioned how the how of it is connected to the why of it. So an illustration would be courage. That's one of the fundamental virtues I mentioned, right? So how do you practice courage? Aristotle made the tautological statement that you practice courage by being courageous. Uh, you know, so in some ways, well, that doesn't tell you much, right? But if you think about the function of the group, so if you're in battle and you are afraid because you're about to be killed, you're going to muster courage if you have good character anyway, not because of your self-interest, but because of your, you know, your brothers on the battlefield, your sense of you're being courageous for them. You're being courageous for the group. You're spurred to be virtuous because you care about the whole in a way that makes you transcend yourself. And we could say that there's a similar function at work in every one of the virtues, however you you might name them or you know, come up with terms that are your core virtues. Aristotle also said something rather mystical, and that is that there's only one virtue. Even though they had, you know, the Greeks had them broken out into these cardinal virtues and they were in tension with one another to some degree. But he also understood, at least the way I would interpret it, is that there is this cosmic upward current of the good. There's a magnetism towards better, that virtues help us tap into that. It helps us act out that. It helps us be that in a way that, that creates happiness in ways that we can never achieve if we are only interested in ourselves. Well, there's so much there, and I'm torn because I, want to, I don't want to take you away from this. So I'll give you a choice here. I would love to come dive deeper into something you alluded to, which is the importance of recognizing that our cultural tensions reflect polarities. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot more to be said that you say it beautifully in the book. And I think that's one of the unique contributions you're making. So I want to make sure we get to that. But I also want to make sure to give you the opportunity of speaking more to some of the several issues you just raised. Is there anything you'd like to say more about ideals? I think polarities is a good place to go in the conversation because it relates back to several of the things that I've talked about, about the United States being highly polarized, that the idea that, it, that the polarity is simply between the left and the right is not, it's not, a, it's not a good enough resolution for us to see what's going on, right? That's kind of a distortion. It's an oversimplification because the polarities that are disrupting our society exist both within the left and within the right. But rather than thinking of polarity as some kind of permanent disagreement or something that's entirely negative, as I explain at length in the book, this idea of polarity is a truncated understanding of the, the structure of emergence itself. That is dialectical development, right? That is the telos of the whole to integrate and the telos of the part dif to differentiate. That's a kind of a microcosmic pattern that expresses the macro structure of the universe as a whole. So we could say the infinite and the finite are in some ways the prime polarity with evolution being, you know, the attempt to transcend and include both a sort of a, you know, a, a, the evolution conceived broadly as the universe's process of becoming that we are agents of that process whereby 
We're trying to bring the infinite more and more into the finite. We're trying to pursue this upward current of the good, which I would say emanates from the infinite and returns to the infinite. And it's as it encircuits the finite in the same way that that physical energy uh, encircuits the finite. The deep cosmic implications of this universal structure of development, this polarity, I mean, it was, you know, first understood thousands of years ago by Lao Tzu and by Heraclitus, right? But they didn't have a developmental understanding of the polarity. It's only in the 20th, late 20th century, we began to, to connect the idea of these polarities or these antimonies, or they have many different names, and Nicholas of Cusa talks about them, right? They've been recognized from antiquity. But the idea that these are actually moments of the dialectic, that this thesis and antithesis continues to reappear both across the levels and within the levels of development, that it can be either a force of decay or when properly understood and harnessed as a kind of an engine of growth, that this inherent indestructible nature of these polarities can be worked with to help produce our further growth. So when we understand that whenever there's a new historically significant emergence in history, it creates a dialectical difference or this hinge or a pivot point, as we talked about. And so, you know, we have the traditional civilization. I mean, it continues to evolve in its own way, but we can trace it all the way back to the axial age, perhaps, right? It's thousands of years old that traditional religious civilizations dominated the world for thousands of years. But then we have this momentous emergence of modernity during the Enlightenment. And again, modernism has continued to evolve and change since its birth in the Enlightenment, but there's continuity of values. These liberal values are what hold it together across history. And that this dialectical difference between the traditional and the modern continues, it's well-documented within mainstream academia and discourse, right? So people understand that traditionalism and modernity are not the same thing. What is not as well understood is that this progressive worldview represents a similar kind of dialectical emergence, another pivot point in history, which creates online and existing for the first time in human history. We have the older but still active polarity between traditionalism and modernism, much more recent but more powerful than ever, dialectical polarity between modernity and progressivism. And now we have an opportunity to take the next dialectical step which makes a separation from progressivism, but does what these other steps, you know, in other words, when, when modernity first emerged during the Enlightenment, it rejected traditionalism out of hand, right? The French went too far. They tried to eliminate the church and kill all the priests and, you know, change the calendar and everything else. And that didn't work because they actually needed some of the elements of traditionalism. Likewise, right? Progressivism, many of the more strident voices within progressivism would like to see modernity eliminated. It's kind of a fantasy that we could safely rid the world of modernity and go back to these kind of local communities in harmony with nature. I mean, I think it's a beautiful idea, but it's ultimately a kind of magical thinking because progressivism itself is highly dependent upon the achievements of modernity, right? If modernity collapses, progressivism won't be far behind, right? We'll all devolve to a pre-modern condition, and that's a possibility, but I'm not willing to accept that. I'm, I'm saying, look, that this next step, which goes from antithesis to synthesis, is a way of growing out of this mess, and a key philosophical technology, a key element of the new truth, which is making this emergence possible, is this enlarged recognition of the evolutionary function of these polarities, how we can work with them by creating relationships where we find a stuck polarity, like we see now in American politics, we can create a a generative polarity, a kind of polarity wherein the two poles are brought together in a kind of challenge and support. So to give an example, liberty and equality, right? These, These go back to modernity in its attempt to bring about liberty and create a new level of equality. But liberty and equality are in a permanent dialectical tension with each other. They form a polarity. Because if we just pursue liberty, we're going to have gross inequality. But if we want to try to create thoroughgoing equality, we're going to have to stomp all over liberty. So ideally, these values that are in tension are at the same time, they're they're mutually correcting. They can help each other achieve their value-creating potential. Indeed, that's one of the lessons of this polar relationship. So there's polarities across every human experience, right? But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about black and white or up and down. We're talking about value polarities. It's a behavior of values. It's a new understanding of the physics-like behavior of value energy 
that points to one of the, just like electricity, right? Maxwell's equations points to the polarity and the way that the behaviors of physical energy generate these poles. And the same thing could be said with value energy. That is that these positive, positive polarities where two values are in tension, but they each need each other to maximize their value creating capacity, that that's a new understanding, a developmental understanding of this behavior of values, which relates directly to our political condition. So, so that's part of it. And, and so I'm you know, really excited about it and, and can see how it's not just some technique of organizational development as it's being sold by some, it's more of a, of a deep understanding of the nature of the universe and the, the fractal distribution of the whole into every part. And indeed part of the physics of value that we can harness and understand anew, just like modernity created this ability to understand the objective physical world, this new emergent worldview is giving us the ability to understand this inner subjective we space, that this interior of culture, which has its own kind of physics and its own kind of behaviors, which if we understood them more correctly, in the same way that, you know, that one of the major fruits of, of modern science was scientific medicine, which has improved the human condition immensely, this new understanding of values and cultural, the evolution of consciousness and culture is promising to give us a kind of social medicine that can help heal the wounds of history and reestablish the necessary solidarity for a functional democracy. Wow. I, yeah, I have a question. Man, you're such a fire hose. <laughs> well, you have sophisticated listeners, so I think I can get away with it. <laughs> it's, it's remarkable to be here experiencing this. So how do we get started now? People that are listening to this are going, wow. Uh, first of all, I'll add my bit. Read the book. Take notes. Go back over it and buy a bunch of copies and give to people you think that are ready to hear that. But how do we begin to walk this path of cultural intelligence, of post-progressivism, of developmental politics as a practice in the world to heal and to begin to bring these ideas into form. Sure. Well, the, what's emerging, what's, has, what's been emerging really since the Big Bang, right? It, it, from some perspectives, at least in, in this you know, emerging internal universe, are these values of the good, the true, and the beautiful, right? Which I mentioned, that's kind of a touchstone that I keep coming back to. And so these values, in a sense, it could be practiced, and so the, the value that's leading in, in this new emergence, I call the, the new truth, right? The new truth that consciousness evolves, that consciousness and culture co-evolve, that we're each agents of this evolution within ourselves and within our larger society. So that truth, how do you practice truth? Well, you know, the simple answer is learning and teaching. Right, you have there. There, you have to digest it. You have to read. You have to listen to podcasts and and you know take it in and spend some time considering it. But you can't just soak it up. You also have to give it out, right? Because it's energy, it's metabolized. So you, you take it in, but your ability to take it in and recognize its value and get excited and energized by it is the practice of trying to express it. So start by telling your friends and family, then maybe, you know, write a blog post about it or a comment on the website or teach the truth in your own limited capacity, right? As you can, where you can, because this truth is like a form of light and power, it lights the way forward, but it also gives us the motivational energy to try to actually implement it. So, okay, we've tried to make this as accessible as we can. Again, we could get, you know, nerdy and intellectually deep as I've, you know, kind of tried to do a bit in this podcast, but part of our obligation to make this politically accessible and politically powerful is to make it understandable and thus useful to people who are not, you know, egg-headed political philosophers. So that begins with terminology that begins to say what it's about, like post-progressive, right? A post-progressive political perspective, a post-progressive political sense of identity and cultural agreement space. So we've done that by creating this website, the post-progressive post. It's part, part of it's a political newspaper, part of it's a brochure for this political perspective that we're doing our best to advance, but it rests on, you know, much deeper philosophy as we've, you know, discussed some. So how can people get more involved where well, they can go to the post-progressive post and they can read about it? I mean, we have, we have these little internet quizzes to try to engage people, right? So I have a test. Are you post-progressive? Ultimately, it's just a kind of form of political rhetoric <laughs> wrapped up in an internet quiz, but it gives people something to do and they can think about 
whether they see the other side as the enemy or whether they are attracted to a new way of looking at it. We also have this, like I mentioned, this virtues exercise, your portrait of the good that can help jumpstart your, your virtues practice. We have a worldview questionnaire that, that helps people think about their worldview. So we have all kinds of you know, gimmicks on the website for people to get engaged, but we also have more academic papers. So we, we're trying to build this movement on many levels. We have a, a club the Post-Progressive Association, right? It's only a few months old. It meets on Zoom. And so people can join that by, you know, just agreeing that they will try to come from a post-progressive perspective. We have this larger effort to try to bring these ideas into the marketplace of ideas. A big part of my time is spent uh, recruiting board members and financial supporters, because ultimately a a partial truth is that the excellence of your ideas will find their own level. Another partial truth is that it's intense competition in the marketplace of ideas. And and often the best ideas in this culture don't rise to the fore by themselves automatically as they once perhaps did. So we do need to have the resources necessary to put these ideas out and to gain enough institutional momentum that we begin to have the credibility that will attract the attention of the influencers who we'd like to share our ideas with to help them appreciate how if they were able to adopt a developmental perspective and begin to metabolize this new truth about the evolution of consciousness and culture, then the solutions to all their problems, or at least most of their problems, as I mentioned, you know, almost every problem is a problem of consciousness. So this new truth is extremely powerful, but we've yet to break through into the mainstream with it. And so we're thinking that in order for this truth to get out there, it has to solve some problem. And so this problem of a hyper-polarized democracy in peril in America, that seemingly is a historically potent problem, which perhaps, uh, because nobody else seems to have a solution for it, right? They're grasping for straws. We believe we do have a solution, but it's upstream from politics. It's a cultural solution, a politics of culture, a cultural intelligence, right? So so we're, we're, we're trying to build a political movement, right? Nobody knows how to do that, right? There have been many examples of other organizations that had, you know, $30 million and they failed miserably. So it's not just a matter of money, but money's an important element of building the institutional momentum and the, you know, the, the sort of the cultural weight that we need to begin to make inroads in the larger culture and help them appreciate how seeing our situation from a developmental lens takes it from 2D to 3D. Right, we begin to see this, this vertical dimension of development, you know, not a linear dimension, but one in which we can recognize how you know, that, that is something more keeps coming from something less. And the opportunity to participate in the next step of something more is now beginning to emerge like it's never before in our time. The uh, idea which comes to mind is from Aldous Huxley's utopian novel, Island, where the stranger who washes ashore on this utopian island finds this functioning utopia, and and he asks, well, when you were building this, where do you start? And the response was, we start everywhere at once. And what I hear is that's what you're trying to do. You've done inner work, you've done education, you've immersed yourself in political philosophy, now you're building an institute, fundraising, trying to create an institutional support for this kind of work. And and it really feels like that's so crucial to, to start everywhere at once and build a foundation in multiple domains and dimensions. I want to go back to a question you, you raised a little before, but it feels so important. I'd love to have, have you illuminate it more. And that's this issue we find ourselves in now, which is the way you put it, everyone has their own truth. Sometimes people call it the crisis of meaning making, the lack of shared consensus reality. That really seems tough. And your phrase, which is a, is a widespread one, that everyone has their own truth. To me, it feels like actually we're selling out on truth that we are willing to say and believe what's convenient rather than delve deeper into what can be, as Al Gore said, an inconvenient truth. I'd love to hear you speak more about this because it seems so much of your work is about, as you said, going upstream and looking at the cultural causal factors. And this feels like one of the cultural factors of our time. And I'd love to hear you speak more about it. Sure. Well, I mentioned that the reason that our sense of objective truth or or a common willingness to admit what's true 
how that has suffered. It's been one of the casualties of the culture war. And as I mentioned, it's because in some ways, the good is more important than the true, right? That when the good becomes disrupted, the truth inevitably follows. And so I think that right now people are trying to create their own truth because they're trying to protect their own worldviews. That, that even though they may not have an understanding of the, the developmental structure of emergence as we described, there's a deep intuition, and I would say a, a rightness about the fact that if traditionalism were to be eliminated entirely, right, even in the future where people have grown out of being evangelicals, for example, there are elements of this traditional worldview which are permanent features of our civilization. We can't wipe those out without the collapse of the structure into a pre-modern condition. And so there's this intuition about the existential threat to both their identity and to their cultural set of values, which in order to protect that, they're, they're willing to do anything. And like, like World War II, right? I mean, you know, Churchill said that, you know, that the truth must be accompanied by a bodyguard of lies, right? Because, you know, when it comes to the existential existence of England, then lying, cheating, and stealing is, you know, called for because we're trying to protect a higher good. And so trying to protect the higher good of the, the values that provide your identity and your heritage and your cultural location, then all of a sudden you're in a war. It's at least seemingly justified to try to gaslight or, or deny these basic objective truths, which the other side uses against you. So that the truth is a casualty of the culture war, as I mentioned. And recovering a sense of objective truth means recovering a sense of objective goodness which means creating a degree of, of social solidarity, not complete solidarity. There'll always be this indestructible polarity, right? People will always, there'll always be political differences and contests. But part of the way we can reclaim a sense whereby what's true can persuade the other side is when the relationship of these polar cultural factions is brought into a deliberative container of challenge and support so that the challenge doesn't become absolute that the support, just like liberty and equality moderate each other, right? Challenge and support moderate each other. So the, the truth can act as a support by saying, look, climate change is true, or, you know, traditional values are, are, you know, there's good there, or, you know, whatever kind of thing we can maybe point to in the culture where people are outrageously denying what's obviously true to us, that occurs on both sides in its own way. And it's a matter of, of reducing this sense of existential threat that one kind of worldview wants to stomp out or completely conquer and dominate the other, right? This reappearance of dominator hierarchies is kind of a form of regression, right? So, you know, traditionalism, one of its pathologies, it, is it creates dominator hierarchies, and you see that throughout the religious civilizations of history. But now within progressivism, we see at least some, some of the more fundamentalist elements of progressivism trying to kind of just flip the dominator hierarchy, create a new kind of traditional dominator hierarchy. And that itself represents a regression, which is not only an existential threat to traditionalism, it's an existential threat to the entire civilization that modernity has wrought. <laughs> so the truth has to be understood in the context of the good, and the good has to be understood in the context of a collective sense of transcendence, which is key to restoring our, our social solidarity, as I've argued. Yeah, I'm reminded of the line from Jesus, which I have reflected on a lot and just seems so powerful, the truth will set you free. But it's not quite as simple as we think, because to see what really is so, and, and actually all we can ever really see is our own experience, to see profoundly into our own experience and to the extent to we can see to what extent it actually is accurate and so forth. That's a real art and practice. Let me just add, so thank you for that, but let me just add that there's something mystical that Hegel said, which I've gotten a lot out of, and that is he said, you know, the truth is merely the dialectical movement itself. And so that connects to this idea of the upward current of the good, that values aren't static, that they're moving like energy, always moving toward greater perfection when properly you know, allowed to move. And the truth as the dialectical movement means what's true is what helps us make further progress, which illuminates reality more clearly than ever before. And so when the dialectical movement of history is at least hopefully temporarily arrested by this kind of stuck polarity of the culture war, multiple stuck polarities, the truth suffers because we're, our progress is blocked 
we're precluded from furthering the movement of the dialectic, you know, this, this emergence of something new, the ingression of novelty, that, that's temporarily held in place. And that's why we're trying to break out of that stuckness by contributing to the movement of the dialectic, by bringing the new truth, which is consciousness evolves. Steve, I'd love to hear you speak a little bit about one issue which you don't give much attention to, and of course you can only attend to so much in a book, and that is the role of technology in both creating the cultural divisiveness and conflict and meaning crisis and so many other issues, and ways you see in which it might be harnessed more skillfully and usefully and hopefully for the benefit of all. Sure. Well, there's been a lot of really excellent thinking on technology. It's such, it's such a big and deep subject that I'm a little intimidated by the knowledge of the scholars of technology in the sense that I don't claim to understand it, right, like they do. But when we understand that there's this relationship between the I, the we, and the it, right, and that the physical artifacts of our civilization and are impacted by our internal evolution of consciousness and culture, and certainly the, the proliferation of communication technology. I think it's both part of the problem and potentially part of the solution. We see it moving in a lot of different directions. So in some ways, the fact that now every person that we can make television right here in this podcast, that, that in some ways that, that the media has been democratized. So the, the large gatekeepers are no longer in control. And that's empowered a lot of voices which are radical, disruptive, mistaken, right? Some of them pathological. So there's been a, the, the democratization of, of, of our communications, of our infra, information infrastructure has both been a, a force of growth and a force of decay, right? They're going at the same time. But at the same time that we see this democratization of the media where everybody can make media and have access to you know, media internationally, that has also been uh, accompanied by the monopolization of this media environment by the big tech companies, right? That's its own problem. So it's it's very, you know, complex. We'd probably do an entire podcast, you know, on itself on the impact of technology on cultural evolution. It would be something that I'd want to prep for, you know, in other words, uh, I, I, you know, I have some ideas about it, but, you know, that's, that's not where my central expertise lies. But I can certainly say that the, both the decaying forces of our modern information media technology and the growth forces are both online. And, and, and it's easy for people to look, to concentrate on just one of these trends, to see it as a force of decay exclusively, or to see it as merely, you know, up onward and upward without recognizing the destructive nature I mean, some of this destruction is creative destruction, right? The creative destruction of the establishment gatekeepers in the media. But some of it's just destructive destruction. And that is the destruction of civil discourse and the siloing of people. So we can certainly decry the corrosive effects of social media, but we can compare that to the democratization of media that's been happening at the same time, whereby marginal voices like those of, who are trying to advance the integral worldview or this post-progressive political perspective, that we have a chance of getting the attention of a larger society like we've never had before. So, you know, it's good news and bad news, I guess, is a way of summarizing it. In my thoughts and talks in the past, I would mention the Black Death as being one of the evolutionary sledgehammers that brought modernity into existence. In other words, when the mythic answers and the scripture and the bones of saints and the prayers and the incense and all that didn't do it, they had to find something that did, right? Hence science, no more magical stories. Let's just find the facts, ma'am, this sort of thing. And I was thinking today, it seems, you know, we're in this whole second wave of the pandemic and it's hugely split our country. And especially I, I live in, in Louisiana right now, a very conservative area. And I was thinking that perhaps this is in, in like manner might serve as a push, a move toward the emergence of a new awareness, a new consciousness, maybe moving more people into modernity. I'm not sure. Well, sure. I, I mean, I think that the impact of you know COVID-19 on human history, you know, we're we're a little close to see its full impact, right? But at least to do, if we compare it to the, you know, the Black Death Plague of Europe, which helped delegitimize you know, traditionalism as a dominant worldview, at least in a micro way, we could see that the events of 2020 both energized the emergence of progressivism, right? Uh, catalyzed it, 
made it more visible, gave it more cultural power than ever before, but also exposed its potential pathologies more evidently than ever before. And so at the very least, at least that's one point of data that we could say, okay, things have changed since 2020 because progressivism is, is no longer seen as kind of a, you know, just the far left. People are beginning to recognize that it's, it's not just leftism, that it's a much bigger cultural worldview that supports various ideologies, right? Environmentalism, anti-racism, lots of different ideologies that overlap but are not exactly the same exist within this larger worldview, right? So worldviews are not ideologies. Worldviews contain multiple and sometimes conflicting ideologies. And so sometimes, you know, when I, like I was teaching this class, people are saying, well, you're too hard on progressivism. Don't we have to treat all worldviews, you know, kind of equally for their good and the bad? And I would say that that's true to a degree. But there's another way in which at the, in the timeline of human history, this integral or post-progressive worldview is emerging beyond progressivism, right? It's a di it's, it's dialectical relationship is with progressivism. It's the shortcomings or limitations of this progressive worldview that mean that progressivism is not the end of history. It can't, you know, it, it can't become the entire society because the society will fall apart because it, it's in antithesis. It doesn't appreciate how these other sets of values are necessary, right? So, so we have a special relationship with progressivism, and that doesn't mean that we are, are just against progressivism, right? We're not that luxury that the previous worldviews had of just rejecting the previous worldview, where, you know, the God of one becomes the devil of the next. We can't let progressivism's sense of transcendence, we, we can't neglect that or, or discount that or try to, you know, array ourselves against that. But we do have a special responsibility regarding progressivism, both because its pathologies are the points of departure for this next step of emergence, but also because the traditionalism and modernity have a worldview that is more evolved, that is a worldview that has transcended them. So, you know, modernity transcends traditionalism and provides a critique and a corrective on traditionalism. Progressivism transcends modernity and provides a critique and hopefully a corrective on modernity. Well, that's our job, is to transcend progressivism and to provide a critique and a moderation of progressivism. And that's another way of describing this synthesis. Again, Hegel didn't use the term very often, or you know, maybe just once thesis, antithesis, synthesis. He described this process as affirmation, negation, and then negation of the negation. And by negation of the negation, he didn't mean an elimination of the antithesis or, or a complete invalidation of this original negation, but a moderation of the negation so that the affirmation, the original thesis, could continue to exist and you could have the best of both. So that's, in some ways, another way of describing what we're trying to do. We're trying to negate the negation. And since progressivism is a negation of Western civilization, we're trying to recover the gifts of Western civilization, but, but at the same time, integrating those with the important gifts of progressivism. And this is a new opportunity in history that's only possible with this emergent epistemological capacity, which I described as integrative meta-perspective. And it's this that is ultimately this, the, the solution to the meaning crisis and the way that we can recover a common sense of truth and a common sense of transcendent goodness. Steve, I'd love to hear you speak a little more about something you alluded to but which feels really crucial to this conversation and your, your mission and the, the work the Institute is doing. And that is the role of contemplative practice. And I think of it in a couple, several ways here. First, it's clearly being very important, your own maturation and, and understanding of these issues. But also, it's a central, you, you're two of the central dynamics to help us grow beyond that you point to the cultivation of the virtues and the recognition and appreciation of transcendent ideals and psychological development itself, our, our maturation in our capacity to appreciate these values and be moved by them. And we don't have a lot of practices for doing that. It's a, a sad fact is we don't know much about how to foster psychological development or get people to become more virtuous. If you look at the virtues, a lot of it is exhortation, which doesn't work very well. Actual practices we don't have in our Western culture, as yet we don't have much. Yet if you turn to the world's contemplative traditions, you find libraries of practices for the cultivation of virtues and for inducing transcendent states 
and for fostering development. So love to hear you speak to that. Sure. Well, if we were to define contemplative practices broadly to include any kind of work on developing your interior, right, of evolving your consciousness, of, of pursuing spiritual growth, right, then we can identify a whole wide variety of them, virtue practices, certainly meditation practice of various kinds. Um, we might also identify, you know, prayer and worship, which are, you know, freighted words, which we might want to upgrade, <laughs> you know, communing with the, the being that is being itself. I mean, there's lots of different ways that people can pursue a contemplative practice broadly defined. I think, I think that recognition of meditation itself, which I know many of my friends and colleagues really think is, is the royal road to personal spiritual development. You know, I certainly wouldn't argue with that, but I would also point out that what it means to contemplate can have many dimensions. So for example, I consider, I mentioned, you know, psychedelics, I continue to use that as a, maybe it's a stretch to call it a contemplative practice, but I, I try to have a psychedelic journey every year. And that's allowed me to kind of step outside my ego and see the world from a new perspective. That is a, is a way of, of I, I think, th at least some people can use for their personal internal development. I, I guess, you know, th this idea of working on your own spiritual development, using any number or combination or, or focus on any, any one of the, the major practices, these major psychodynamic practices, which are now available to humanity more widely and more well-taught than ever before. I think that that's a, a very important element of, of what it means to be in this integral worldview, that, that is those who aspire to join this culture. I think that one of the social norms that I'd like to see develop within this culture is that people recognize that transformative practices are something which a, a person who's concerned with their own spiritual development and recognizes that that's how the, they can not only benefit themselves, but fortify their gift to benefit humanity and the planet. I think that that's an element of the social norm. That's why I mentioned that the practice of virtues is the how and the why are connected because the, the why is, is connected to uh, at least partially the social norm this expectation of ongoing spiritual growth, you know, in the same way that a social norm of progressivism is to eat natural foods, right? And to treat your body, you know, to, to try to, to pursue healthy practices. Part of the way that people, you know, at least many people within progressive culture, part of the way they're able to, to do that consistently is there, there are these expectations and social norms, which make it easy, which, which fortify their determination and their will. And I think a similar kind of social norm, we see it to a degree in every worldview, personal development is, is at least has its own form in each one of the worldviews that we talked about. But I think with the emerging integral worldview, that this idea of spiritual development and contemplative practice becomes much stronger and becomes more widely defined to include more different you know, psychological technologies or spiritual technologies. So at least that's something along those lines. Is there, is there any kind of follow-up on that or anything you'd like me to say more? Well, uh, obviously, we could follow up <laughs> in any, any number of ways, but I'm also aware that uh, you've been very generous with your time and, uh, and we probably want to think about wrapping up soon. I'm wondering if there's anything you'd like to add to all that you've given us. Well... I don't, nothing is, is um, standing out in my mind in this moment about what am I missing, right? There's plenty of things that, you know, that are, there are elements of this that are talked about in the book that we haven't covered and more that have, we've kind of discovered since then in our work with the post-progressive movement that we're working to build. But I would just invite people to participate, right? I mean, we have a, we have a Facebook group of people who can stand Facebook join the group and you know, make a post. There's so many ways that you can participate and begin to investigate this exciting cultural emergence that don't require you, you know, adopting it as your personal identity. Cultural intelligence is something that everybody can use regardless of their, their worldview. But the folks who have a sense of responsibility for trying to come to the need of American democracy in this time of peril, that is, this is something that people can become directly involved in, right? That, that it, it does provide a new political identity, but it, it offers value, you know, separate from that, whereby people can just gain a little bit of cultural intelligence. It goes a long way, not only in feeling more at home 
right, in our current society, but also restoring their hope, having a sense of hope that despite the decay, despite the worsening of the culture war, we can see this from a positive perspective, right, without ignoring the negatives or the decay, we can begin to appreciate that these conditions, these problematic conditions, as they have throughout history, can lead to something more, to to an emergence that that can reestablish a sense of inclusivity. So I I just want to say that we're working very hard to make this accessible, to make it pragmatic, to make it useful, to make it something that people, wherever they are in their politics or their culture, that they can begin to appreciate that this new truth, again, it's light and power. I think it's the, you know, the most useful thing because it, it, it's a kind of a macro solution to our macro problem, which is creating a, a world that works for everybody. And that involves a degree of cooperation, which has been suffering as a result of our growth. That's a beautiful invitation you're giving us all, Steve, a way of uh, contributing which steps beyond the usual conflictual perspectives and approaches and really honors all elements of all elements and stages of our cultural growth and invites us to really align our lives with the highest ideals in the service of our community and culture. That's a that's a very beautiful and, and compelling call you're offering. So Thank you very much. And and your book, Developmental Politics, is just wonderful. The Institute for Cultural Evolution is doing some beautiful work. John, what would you like to add? Well, I've figured out over the last few weeks that the people I want to invite to be part of this are people that inspire me to be a better man, to be a better person. And you certainly fulfilled that. And I'm one of the founding members of the Post-Progressive Association. And I am... Yes, I'm all aboard. And what I think we have here developing is a new politics of hope. It's a fundamental virtue, right? It's, it's a moral obligation, I would say, not to be you know, blindly optimistic, but to know in our hearts that, I mean, you know, the, the universe used to be just a bunch of debris and hydrogen gas, right? After the Big Bang. And now we have the, the beauty and the truth and the goodness of, of our current development on this planet, Although there's plenty of you know ugliness and, and falsehood and you know immorality, I think that that having hope involves again. I mentioned at the beginning of how, how virtues are a technique of perception for this transcendence, for this this upward current, and hope is is certainly a, a very important element of being able to tap into this upward current and recognize that it's not done with us yet. There's more evolution in store. And that we have this amazing opportunity now, perhaps more than any time in history, to participate in what's coming next and help giving birth to it. It's an exciting time to be alive. Thanks so much for giving us the opportunity of being part of this and, uh, and contributing. And thanks so much for the inspiration and ideas you've, you've offered both today and in your book, Developmental Politics. Uh, it's really been a gift. Thanks so much, Steve. Well, it's been a pleasure and an honor to make media with the two of you. I can just end by saying the people are interested in, in, in these ideas, post-progressive.org, right? The post-progressive post, post-progressive.org is the headquarters of our work at the moment and where many new shoots that express the new truth, where these are, are beginning to emerge now. And we invite folks to check it out and to join us and participate with us in the birth of the next great phase of human history. Thanks so much, Steve. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you. Okay. My pleasure. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.